I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In this episode of China Global, we're going to discuss China's strategy of city diplomacy and uh, subnational diplomacy and its importance in an environment of increasingly tense national-level relations. In a decades-long effort to expand its international circle of friends, uh, the People's Republic of China has persisted in supplementing its national-level diplomacy with local exchanges. Um, in a 2014 speech, Xi Jinping emphasized the role of local engagement. And he said, quote, it's necessary to vigorously develop the work of China's international friendship cities and promote exchanges with foreign local governments. Over the past four decades, uh, China's forged more than 2,000 sister city relationships worldwide, including over 200 in the United States and over 350 in the European Union. China forms these ties across the world through the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries. And that's a united front organization that specializes in developing relationships with local business, political, and media figures abroad. But sister cities are only one of the many avenues that Beijing uses to engage with local actors to realize its global objectives. So can this bottom-up approach to diplomacy shape relations at the state level, what opportunities and risks lie in China's strategy of city diplomacy? To discuss these questions, I'm glad to welcome Dr. Marika Olberg, who's a senior fellow with GMF's Asia program, and her research interests include China's media, digital policies, as well as the Chinese Communist Party's influence campaigns and activities in Europe. Marika is co-author of the book Hidden Hand, exposing how the Chinese Communist Party is reshaping the world. So welcome to China Global, Marika. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. So let's start with a big question. Why does subnational diplomacy matter to Beijing, and how does it complement its national-level engagement? So there are many, many different reasons why the Chinese government engages in these types of contacts, and I, I, I guess I'll pick out two, and hopefully that make it a little bit clearer what the actual goals are here. So the first, the first reason is the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government are really quite good at talking to anybody that they see as either politically relevant or potentially politically relevant. This is also why the party has a very well-developed, possibly the most developed party-to-party -party diplomacy of all, of all countries in the world. I don't think anybody is up to China's level on that. And the idea is, you know, you don't just talk to the government, but you also talk to any future government, to any party in opposition, to any future politicians that might arise, to any past politicians that are relevant to you. And in a way, Local diplomacy serves a similar purpose that, you know, you're not just talking to a national government or a federal government. You're also talking to other governments around it. And in many ways, there is a similar rationale that you might actually have some local politicians that might become relevant on the national or the federal stage later. One, one point, one important case here is the the man who most likely will become the future chancellor of Germany. He was, you know, the mayor of Hamburg between, I think, 2011 and 2018. 
After that, he became the finance minister of Germany. And of course, to, to some regard, he could use his previous contacts. He had already good relationships with China. And now he may very well become the chancellor. And the idea is, of course, not that, you know, he once you have met with uh, any Chinese representative, you're, you're compromised. But the idea from the Chinese side is we have good relations. We may be able to use those good relations. So that's that's one reason. Just talk to anybody who may become relevant at any point. The, the second one, and this is, I guess, where it gets a little bit um, more strategic, is an approach that's often described as using the countryside to surround the cities or using the periphery to surround the center. The idea being that, you know, you may be dealing with a national or a federal government that is opposed to some of your policies, such as, you know, the U.S. government or the German government not necessarily signing on to the Belt and Road Initiative. So what you can do in that case is you have this opposition at the national level, but you can try to get city governments or provincial or state governments on board, perhaps get them to emphasize vis-a-vis -vis the federal government how important it would be and how good it would be for the country's economy to sign on to these Chinese initiatives and thereby add some pressure, especially on governments that are that are opposed to that. So basically, not entirely a way of circumventing nation, state-to-state -state relations, national relationships, but complementing them, in this case, in China's favor um, by simply pushing policies that might be rejected at the national level. So these are two reasons. There is a number of other ones, sometimes concrete initiatives, sometimes very long-term considerations, but I think these two are key. In the United States, this issue of Chinese activities at the local level and their possible negative impact was really made a priority in the Trump administration. And I remember that uh, the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, had given a speech in 2020 uh, to the National Governors Association. And he had warned that competition with China's, you know, is not just a federal issue, that it happens at the state level. And he said it, it affects our capacity to perform America's vital national security functions. And, and that really struck me. Um, uh, and, and I wonder if you could talk about whether you think this is a national security issue for the United States and other democracy, this, this, this framing, is, is that the way we should see it? Yes and no. I think there are many ways you can frame these local diplomacy activities. And I think one, one thing that I do want to emphasize is not every single activity at the local level is, is automatically a national security threat. You know, if you have a student exchange, if you have some other form of exchange, not everything immediately rises to the level of threatening U.S. national security. So that's really important to emphasize that there's various types of exchanges. Um, it's also, I guess, important to emphasize that local governments do sometimes speak up in line with you know, Chinese government talking points, not because they've been asked by their Chinese counterparts, but because there is a real divergence in interest between, you know, the federal government and state governments in what they prioritize. And to, to a large degree, I do think that is due to the fact that, yes, at the state level, you're going to be more concerned with your economy, you're going to be more concerned with cultural ties, and you don't necessarily have that national security component in there. So there are certain things that you don't consider. So even though I don't think we should 
politicize every single exchange that is ongoing at the state level, at the city level, at any other level. It is generally not a terrible idea for these local actors to develop more, more of an understanding of the politics of this in China itself, you know, not just what are our own goals, but what are the goals on the Chinese side? What are they pursuing here? To what extent does this run counter to what our federal government policy is? And in part, I think that is also to to protect your own city, because if your own policy runs counter to federal policy, at some point there there is a good chance that somebody might step in and actually stop you from doing what you're doing. Um, we have seen cases of that, for instance, in Australia, um, where Victoria had signed a BRI memorandum of understanding and was on board with the BRI. And eventually the Australian government stepped in and said, no, you can't do this. So in this particular case, it would have been better to have this understanding earlier on to prevent these kind of initiatives that you invest in and then that cannot come to pass. And one of the things you've written about is the advantages that um, China has in its city-city diplomacy, in part because their cities are so large and they allocate, of course, really large numbers of staff. They have offices often all around the world or, or, or people who work perhaps in, in the embassies. And they have much more coordination with the central government than sort of non-authoritarian systems that have this as a priority would have. So how do these dynamics sort of shape these city-to-city relations? And is there a way that then other cities can prepare themselves then to deal with just the large effort on the part of the Chinese, the push that comes out from China, because we are much uh, smaller, I think, in many cities around the world, and the staff's also smaller, that they devote to international issues. Right. So I I think a, a lot of cities already in Europe and in the United States have noticed this, that their level of preparedness, the people that they have is pales in comparison to what China has. In some cases, you have for bigger cities, you have several hundred people working for a foreign affairs office at the city level only. And then, of course, such efforts on the Chinese side are supplemented by organizations at the central level, such as the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries, which you already mentioned, which kind of shows itself to the outside world as a civil society organization, but is really part of the party's larger United Front apparatus. So there's really this big mismatch um, in, in how prepared cities are for this. Some cities have already noticed that, oh, on the Chinese side, this is a lot more official. This is a lot different, actually, to city-to-city diplomacy in other cases. Um, and I think part of that really is because more people are working on this in China. There is more central coordination, whereas it's still seen as kind of people-to-people ties only um, in most European countries in the United States as well, Um, which also has often the unfortunate um, side effect. What the PRC side wants to achieve kind of drives a lot of the agenda when exchange does happen. So there's no super easy way to compensate for this. I think in part, it really does mean that cities should expand their own like their own staff that work on international affairs it definitely helps for cities to coordinate more 
amongst themselves within, you know, individual countries. I know there is initiatives in the United States underway to make cities to have more central planning on that. Um, there is, I know that here in Germany, the federal government has taken some interest in actually creating some formats to get cities to talk to one another. So I think the best the best way to deal with this would be to really have cities coordinate with one another, amongst one another. And that's still not going to give you a 300-person staff, even if you take all these cities together. But it makes it a lot easier to, you know, figure out what are the goals on the other side, what own ground rules can you lay down for your engagement with China, what things are useful, what things are potentially harmful, and just to have this manpower by coordinating among different cities. That, to me, is the most important point. The Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries that we've been talking about has a principle in its mission statement that is about the commitment of China to its uh, reunification, which, of course, refers to its ambition to take over Taiwan, as they would say, return it to the motherland. And in 2019, the Chinese actually canceled the Beijing-Prague sister city agreement after Prague's mayor refused to sign onto the agreement's terms, in which he would have to acknowledge that Taiwan is an inalienable part of Chinese territory. So this is really interesting to me, that these sister city relationships can be really used to coerce other cities to accept this one China principle and maybe even to curtail their ties with Taiwan. So what can we do to push back against China's efforts to use these sort of sister city relationships to advance its own political agenda? I think the answer is kind of similar to the previous one, and that is to actually talk to each other more. Um, I think these clauses that, you know, commit individual cities to the one China principle as Beijing views it, obviously has different views on it. It's my understanding they're not very uncommon. So it's quite it's quite standard in many ways. And I do think it makes sense to come together among different cities and figure out how are we going to deal with them. That doesn't necessarily have to end in a consensus that, oh, we're all not going to sign on to this. I do think if cities band together, they can have more collective bargaining power. But this is also coming together to define your own red lines, to define your own code of conduct for dealing with other cities that are in a in authoritarian countries is important because this kind of pushback doesn't just happen at the bigger level, at the MOU level. It can also happen. There's, there were cases, for instance, in Switzerland where individual cities wanted to have a Tibet day, and then they got mail. And it should be emphasized that in many cases, these interventions don't come directly through sister cities. They often come through the embassy or the local consulate. So this is not necessarily that the sister city ties are used for this primarily. They can be, but not always. But it may refer to, to to an agreement, say, don't we have good, we have good relations, you know, you have good relations with City X. Do you really want to endanger your good relations with, with us by doing this 
supporting this kind of day. And this, this applies to various kinds of activities of civil society that are absolutely legitimate, that should be protected, and where the government should have, you know, it's no, none of the business of the government to in any way try to stop any citizens of a certain city in doing that. Um, same for certain protests. There have been some cases, I think, in Brussels and London where certain protests were interfered with. And again, I think it's really important for cities to come together to come up with collective strategies to push back against any encroachment on legitimate civil society activity that is um, normal, is how life operates over here, and to make sure that nobody complies with that. And I don't think there's necessarily going to be 100% consensus, but a, a lot of cities are dealing with the same issues. So it really helps to, to swap notes um, and to come up with some common some common red lines on the basics that can then, you know, help you push back, also say, no, we have this consensus and this is simply how things go. I think it really strengthens your position if you're not on your own, if you're not faced with, you know, the embassy or the consulate on your own, but you have a network of cities that have kind of agreed on these basic standards of how civil society functions in our countries. As you observe China's foreign political activities. I wonder if you've seen any learning, any change, because clearly the Chinese must be aware that there's been a bit of a shift in the political climate in many countries. There's more heightened sensitivity around infrastructure investment. There's certainly more awareness, I think, of some of the ambitions of China to actually win over some some influence in ways that could benefit China, maybe at the expense of other countries. So do you see them adjusting any of their tactics or techniques? So this this question is really difficult for me to answer, and there's one one simple reason for it. And that is we're currently in in a new circumstance, in a kind of COVID-induced limbo, where a lot of the activities that used to be normal and that used to take place are simply suspended because China as a country is closed. And a lot of people, most people can't get out and you can't send anybody in. Under these new circumstances where China is basically kind of functioning as its own cut-off cut territory where it's hard to get in, I feel like it's very difficult to evaluate this. In some ways, we've seen, even under COVID circumstances, we've seen some initiatives where actually local government ties were useful and where, you know, individual city governments could use these ties to unbureaucratically get certain equipment, where in some cases, actually, the Chinese side didn't make a fuss about it at all. So there was some some diplomacy that took place very, very quietly. Um, on the other hand, under the COVID situation, you had some some COVID medicine diplomacy that took place very noisily and was, you know, of the type that is commonly labeled as wolf warrior diplomacy, where, you know, it was the really aggressive style with China, one demanding public displays of gratefulness, but also engaging in tactics that are, I, I guess, you know, referred to as throwing mud at the wall and seeing what sticks, but a more aggressive type of often bordering on disinformation. So I feel like as long as 
these relations are not like as long as China is closed, it will be very difficult to observe how the country will react and how it will adjust its own approach once that changes, once it gradually reopens its borders and once these initiatives start taking up again. And I honestly don't have an answer to that. And I also honestly don't know when that opening will happen. And I, my personal assumption, frankly, is that we're going to be in the state where China is going to be largely closed for quite some time. So it will be really interesting to watch how this pans out once China reopens. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is what should be done when there's like differences between local and national governments. Uh, because uh, sometimes we've we've seen, you mentioned the case of Australia, where the state of Victoria had signed this Belt and Road memo of uh, understanding with the Chinese. We've also seen in the case of Prague, where the local government had adopted a much more hawkish stance than the national government. An example in the United States is when the mayor of Los Angeles had warned the federal government that there were domestic economic costs for the city uh, of the trade war with China. I mean, the um, the trade war had led to a decline in Chinese imports to two major ports in Los Angeles as early as uh, 2019. So how do you deal with these local national disconnects in these countries. And, and this is existing, of course, in many democracies. It, does this provide uh, opportunities for China to like divide a, or drive a wedge between the local and central governments? And is that something we should be worried about? Yeah, I, I think it's super fascinating that you mentioned the, the counterexample of Prague, um, where actually the local government is way more hawkish than than the national government um, under Zeman. Um, you have a very similar case actually in Hungary, where the mayor of Budapest is much more hawkish and has kind of um, identified China as an issue where he can um, position himself vis-a-vis -vis the Orban government and can actually use this as an issue for his own for his own political campaigns. Um, so you, you have it really going both ways. Though generally speaking, I think it's more often the other way around, The you know, as in the LA case, where the local governments are going to be more pushing towards smoother ties to preserve their own economic benefit. And that's obviously, they're not, you know, they're not pawns of the Chinese government here. They have those actual interests and there are real local economic concerns tied to this. They would be making those points whether they talk to their Chinese counterparts or not. Um, so I, I think these interests are genuine. Um, generally speaking, I think the Chinese government actually has a lot more sister city relationships in countries like the United States, also in Great Britain and Germany, in some of the big countries where it encounters more difficulties at the national or federal level with its own policies, whereas you have much fewer relationships in Central and Eastern European countries where the inverse is sometimes the case. And I think to some extent that is that is intentional, that you have a stronger focus on local diplomacy in some of the large countries where you run into difficulty with the national and federal government for the simple reason that, yes, 
you can then, from the Chinese side, try to mobilize these voices in your favor, because not because you know, you've compromised them, but you simply have an overlap of interest. I, I think any politics in any democratic country is figuring out conflicts between different groups with different interests. So in a way, there is no simple solution where somebody just superimposes what, you know, the federal government superimposes itself. I think it's the same as with any other conflict of interest in democratic countries. You need to have, you need to come together, you need to discuss, you need to figure out what are good solutions here that doesn't leave anybody completely behind. I would add the caution that and this is something I obviously don't just tell U.S. states. This is something that I that I talk about a lot in, in my own country, in Germany, and actually tell the German federal government. I think it's really important for whether they're local governments or national governments to understand that you need to reassess your own economic dependence on China and on access to the Chinese market for the simple reason that the Chinese government has a demonstrated history of using economic ties to exert pressure on governments. We've seen this in the case of Canada, very obviously. Um, we've seen it in the case of Australia. So there is a certain willingness to weaponize these economic dependencies. That doesn't mean that you need to completely change that. But I do think every city, every state, every country needs to sit down and assess where are we actually dependent on access to the Chinese market or the Chinese market, how much value does this actually create for us? Where do we have options to diversify that? Um, and where do we urgently need to do that? Because we are dependent in a way that is quite critical. You know, with we, we saw this, I mean, this is a different kind of example, but we saw this in the early days of the COVID pandemic in terms of medical supplies. We were critically dependent on China and that really backfired on us. So, you know, where do we have these dependencies? Where can we gradually reduce them simply to make ourselves less vulnerable um, none of that's going to happen overnight and none of that is easy. But I think it's really important um, to stop framing this conflict as, oh, the United States wants to decouple from China and that's bad and we need to stop that. Or, you know, Europe is going to decouple. There's another side to this equation. And the Chinese government is currently pursuing a strategy where it makes itself less dependent on foreign countries, but of course wants to keep certain dependencies of foreign countries on China. And it's important to be aware of that and to understand that this is not a one-way street and that at every level we need to make ourselves less vulnerable to any kind of weaponization of these dependencies. In your research, have you found any evidence of interference by the Chinese in local elections or in state legislatures, for example, or these sort of out-of-bounds areas where the Chinese really don't go? So I look mainly at Europe. And in Europe, in my opinion, this is not a strong factor at all. What you will sometimes have is United Front organizations backing or publicly promoting certain, certain candidates in countries with large diasporas where they might promote a certain, you know, ethnic Chinese candidate, whether that candidate wants it or not. So it doesn't necessarily mean that this person has United Front ties, but they may get behind this person. So this is something that, that we do see in, in, you know, in Australia and New Zealand and in Canada. And we've seen some attempts to, to, to 
back candidates like that, for instance, in Germany, but they're they're absolutely minor. I don't really see any strong links between the candidates and the actual United Front apparatus. So I think it's still here on this continent a fairly rare phenomenon um, for this to happen. So I think it, it's something that we can we we can and should watch. And I think it's absolutely fair to point out when the United Front apparatus gets very active on that, especially when, you know, messages about elections are spread through WeChat, through certain social media channels that are controlled through China when it puts up certain signs in Chinese saying vote for candidate X. I think that's something that is fair to watch and point out. But I do think it's also important not to, in this case, overstate the current level of intervention because otherwise, once it does intensify in a certain country, you're less likely to find people to believe you if they feel you've previously exaggerated this particular interference. So I think it's very important to state what we see and to be honest about the extent. I mean, I was asked, um, we just had ex elections in Germany, and I was asked, are we going to see large-scale Chinese interference in these German elections? And I said, I don't, I would be very surprised if we did, because at this point, I don't see the Chinese state having that level of understanding or interest in these specific local dynamics in Europe. But that, again, doesn't mean that the PRC wouldn't do that, for example, in Taiwan. Um, or in certain other countries that are closer to home and where there's a better understanding of the political dynamics. So it really is about watching the space, seeing, noticing any new developments and communicating very honestly about them. So finally, what's the single most important thing that democracies can do to make themselves more resilient and less vulnerable to outside influence and pressure from, from China or Russia or any country? I, I think in a way I've already... I've already highlighted two of them, and I'm just going to restate them. One really is cut down on your own dependencies. Once you make yourself less vulnerable to this weaponization, you have a lot more leeway of what you can do. Um, that also means communicating or assessing your own dependence, honestly. In some cases, our dependence on the Chinese market is actually vastly overstated and much lower than in many other contexts, such as, for instance, in Australia and New Zealand, even in, in Japan. So be, be honest about the assessment and reduce where necessary. And the second one is the one that I mentioned as also a, a good tool for, for cities to come up with better strategies, and that is talk to each other. Um, talk to each other, gain a better understanding of what is actually happening. I mean, I talk a lot to people, you know, every time I phone someone and we talk about this topic, basically anybody whether that is, you know, a business or whether that is someone from an NGO that I'm talking to or someone from, from a local student organization, they can always give me like two or three examples where they have come under pressure from, you know, a Chinese embassy. Um, just like collect those examples, analyze them more systematically, understand the patterns and also come together to come up with better responses because you have a lot better collective bargaining power than you have on your own in the situation where you feel like, you know, it's you against the PRC government or against the CCP, um, you can you can come up with much better strategies if you if you do this collectively and simply lay down red lines collectively. And those two taken together, I think, should there's no silver bullet, 
but it would really help us to better manage ties with the PRC and in a way also allow us to continue certain ties with the PRC, to continue certain local ties, but under certain conditions. We've been talking with Marika Olberg, who works with me in the Asia program of the German Marshall Fund, and uh, she focuses on uh, Chinese Communist Party influence campaigns in Europe and better understanding China's media and uh, digital policies. Thanks so much for joining us, Marika. Thanks for having me, Bonnie.